Welcome to The Food Group, a podcast aimed at people who love to know a little more about the food that they're eating. And I don't mean what's in it, but more about how these dishes came into existence at all. What was it that made someone, not always a chef, put the ingredients together in the first place? And what made others copy them and keep them alive for sometimes centuries? We've made every effort to back up these stories with legitimate evidence or endorsement, but they're all simply tales. Only the method behind these dishes has ever been officially recorded, and what you're about to hear has been passed down through the centuries via word of mouth alone. So it's very likely that none of what follows ever happened. We begin today with a story about one of the culinary world's great wonders – It is a dish that combines both spectacle and science. Its appearance at the dinner table always raises excited cooing and trepidation. It's baked Alaska, that wonderful mixture of freezing cold ice cream and warm meringue, which is occasionally ablaze with a flickering lick of ignited brandy too. Its construction is relatively simple, but relies heavily on speed, precision and the incredible insulating effects of beaten egg white. But we'll get to the science shortly. First, let's get a quick explanation of how to make it from the brilliant chef... Daniel Garmisch. Mm, now, it's not easy to, to do because, obviously, as soon as you put ice cream <laughs> in the oven, you would think they're going to melt. But uh, uh, what people uh, realized at the time also, and it was uh, teached by a Chinese chef as well, that uh, meringue was uh, uh, preventing the ice cream from melting but yes, it's a big challenge because you got the ice cream. You need to be your, your, your sponge uh, biscuit, which is uh, uh, deep in a small syrup with alcohol a little bit. And you just kind of glue towards uh, around the, the ice cream and cover completely. And after that, you mask it with some uh, lovely meringue italienne. Uh, and uh, we call meringue italienne. It's a one made with, uh, with a lot of sugar. So it becomes very shiny, very, it's quite thickening. <laughs> When obviously because it's sweet in sugar, and after that you make some lovely design uh, or not, and uh, you bake it, and when it uh, gets this lovely golden brown color, you take it out and you got this kind of transition between the heat and the cold, which is delightful. There is always a good quantity of chemistry going on in most recipes, but in making a baked Alaska, your kitchen has become something akin to a Cambridge University science laboratory. First, for process of beating egg whites with sugar. The technique has been around since the 18th century when stripped back branches were used to beat air into egg white to make light and frothy desserts, as well as more airy cakes. Where this happened first is uncertain, but the town of Meringue in Switzerland has put down a pretty strong argument. So, once you've mastered that little bit of kitchen magic, you then need to cover your frozen ball of ice cream. By the 1800s, chefs like the great Marianne Toine Carême had recorded recipes using meringue and ice cream together. These were often called omelette surprise or even Norwegian omelettes, possibly because Norway was thought of as being particularly cold. However, around the same time, a more conventional scientist called Benjamin Thompson was also playing around with egg whites and his investigations were focused on the insulating property of them. Thompson was a diligent man from Massachusetts, but his work had taken him to England where he was gaining quite a reputation for his investigations into heat and the conductivity of certain natural substances. He set out to prove that by inhibiting the convection of air around something by using a layer of egg white, fur or feathers, then the material inside that layer is protected from the heat. Now this was revolutionary and his findings were widely applauded and eventually gained him a knighthood. His work led to so many advances and useful applications, everything from improved blast furnaces to thermal underwear. Incidentally, he's also credited with inventing the sous vide cooking technique, which involves sealing foods in airtight bags and heating them in a water bath at much lower temperatures. Now, Thompson eventually moved on to other investigations, but let's get back to the egg white. So, 
We have scientific proof of its power and chefs were already well aware of how delicious it could be with the sweet cold ice cream, but we still need to know how this mountain of fluffy white delight became forever associated with one of the coldest, most barren landscapes on Earth. To make this connection, we have to travel to a city that never sleeps, New York. It's 1867 and New York is in full swing. People are making their fortunes and its vibrant multicultural streets were attracting visitors from all over the world. Buildings were growing up to the skies, but at ground level, bars and restaurants were thriving. Chefs from the older culinary powers of France, Germany and England have made their way to Manhattan and were using their skills combined with their new creative freedom to serve lavish banquets all over town. Probably the most well-known of these restaurants was Del Monico's. Its downtown location made it popular with everyone from Wall Street brokers to Irish hoodlums. The chef at the helm in 1867 was Charles Ranhofer, a man built in the mould of Phineas T. Barnum. He was the ultimate showman. In the five years he'd been there, the dinners he served for big occasions still sound incredible by today's standards. Whole lakes built in the dining room, live swans swimming around, you name it, he probably tried it, all in the name of entertainment. So... When the US Secretary of State, William H. Seward, was looking for a venue to celebrate the United States purchase of Alaska, there was only one name on the list, Delmonico's. Alaska had been inhabited by Russian settlers for quite a while, the two great land masses having only a few miles between them. However, the Russians had been unable to find any value in the icy cold wasteland and were keen to return home. Seward, on behalf of his nation, paid $7.2 million for the entire area of Alaska. It doesn't sound like much, and even back then it was quite a steal, especially when you consider the amount of oil, gas and gold that was uncovered beneath the ice all those years later. Ranhofer prepared a celebration meal for Seward and all his team, and it was to be finished off with an almighty omelette surprise. A masterpiece of billowing white meringue surrounding a huge ball of ice cream sat on a layer of sponge. The effect was magical, like an edible version of America's newest state itself. Seward loved it, and Ranhofer christened it Bates, Alaska. This was some feat and not easy to pull off. Let's get a quick chef's perspective from Daniel Galmish. I remember first, when I, during my apprenticeship, we have to make the first one. It's very scary because you need to get it right. And people were ordering was part of the menu. So one for two, one for three, one for four. We used to make them a la minute. Obviously, the, the ice cream was made, a biscuit was made, and we had that uh, um, in a freezer already. And people order before the meal. Also, it is sometimes flambé at the table. And you need to have the meringue, which was right. It need to be hard pick and not soft pick. Otherwise, it just ran on the side of it. You know what I mean? And uh, so it was. it's tricky. Really tricky. and But when he come out and he looked beautiful, you just like, wow, fantastic. You know, and the, the guy take it. Would you like it flambé, sir? Flambé. And it's amazing. In New York, it doesn't take too long for news to spread. And soon, baked Alaskas were all over the city and beyond too. The recipe was considered part of America's growing history. And in the years since, chefs have continued to experiment with the laws of thermal dynamics to excite and tantalise their customers. There's even tell of an inverted baked Alaska with a cold, icy crust preserving a hot, liquid centre. Whatever will they think of next?
There's no record of which wines William Seward and his colleagues drank to celebrate the deal of the century, but I can hazard a guess they were pretty special. And in these podcasts, as well as shedding some light on the creation of a few of the world's most iconic recipes, we're also attempting to put together a collection, on paper at least, of the greatest wines ever created. We've asked wine expert Ollie Smith to throw caution to the wind and draw up our list of godlike wines, but before we get his latest edition, we've also tasked him with picking a more accessible entry, something that you should be able to get hold of a little easier, but is equally noteworthy and as interesting. What have you got, Ollie? Sherry, southern Spain's finest. You know, we're talking about Jerez, and you can also talk about uh, Manzanilla from San Lucar de Barrameda, but what they all have in common is they have the privilege that they never die. And that was a phrase that was actually said to me by uh, Don Manuel Barbadillo's grandson as we opened a cask of sherry from 1891. And the reason he said it was because sherry is made in a continuous way. So the Solera system of these barrels that stack up are constantly being topped up and blended. So some of these bodegas go back hundreds and hundreds of years. So even if you're buying a bottle of sherry for a fiver from a good bodega, you're probably getting molecules in there that stretch back just as old as the barrels, the casks themselves. So it's a real thought, this kind of eternal drop. The truth of that, you know, that, that it has the privilege that it never dies. I love that, that it's a continuous emblematic process. So what you have in, for example, Jerez in Sherry, you have Fino, which is light and bright, and it's, you know, it could, could like be aged for seven years in the barrel. You've got big names, you know, that are out there that are familiar. Tio Pepe's one of them. And they're brilliant, is the bottom line. You know, the big names in, in Manzanilla are brilliant as well. You've got Solia, you've got uh, La Gitana. These are wines, fortified wines, that are beyond their price point, always beyond their price point. When you get into the Amontillados, which are a bit more nutty, into the Olorosos, which are darker, really seriously oxidised already, they're bulletproof. Open up that sherry, it's all oxidised already. It's, it's tasting amazing. They can live for so long. It's a chance to taste back through decades, through centuries. And if you're really lucky, you can taste back to the very start of a bodega in a continuous process. What a link with history, but what an amazing food-friendly style of wine. Deeply underrated, top value for money. You say it's food-friendly, and I think that's that's an interesting point because I, I think a lot of people are confused as to when and how to drink sherry. People yeah. think it's a, a single glass with a Miss Marple box set. <laughs> But it's, it's not, is it? You know, it's, it, there's so many different styles. PX, Pedro Jimenez Sherry, is very, very sweet. It's like liquidised figs and dates. You know, you can have a little bit of that with some chocolate, with some, you know, pud. Uh, it's fantastic on its own. Poured over vanilla ice cream. Lovely. You know, it's a delicious, sweet sherry. But you're right, a lot of them are dry. Fino Sherry, fantastic with shellfish. They're not as boozy as you think. You know, these are 15 percenters, you know, but you get more in Olorosos. They're deeper. Oloroso with a bowl of nuts. Incredible. Just wonderful. Palo Cortado, this mysterious mysterious style that starts off uh, under a blanket of floor yeast and that's what gives the, the kind of the fino sherries their freshness it, it fades away that floor and they they age oxidatively so you get this mysterious style palo cortado is one of those styles that ah oh, i drink it and i, I it just it, immediately it's about the cask it's about the vessel as well as the place so if you imagine the surrounding bodega uh, and the temperature and the climate and the tradition, all of those have effect because the barrels are permeable. They're evaporating away, getting more intense. But where it is also, if you're in Jerez, you get a different type of 
evaporation, different type of aging. If you're in San Lucar, where they make manzanilla, it's completely different thanks to the sea. The climate is just a little different. So they're lighter, even brighter, even fresher. I would drink sherries personally always with food, with tapas, manzanilla and fino, nuts, amontillado, oloroso. Actually, oloroso, do you know, it's a contemplation wine. Have that on its own with cheese as well. I mean, my goodness. Cheese souffle is what they serve it with in Gavroche. Incredible pairing. Really counterintuitive, but delicious. But if you just want to be a perv, and get your jollies, pop tea supermarket, spend seven quid on a PX. It will have been aged so many years, sun-dried flavors, really dark, thick, treacly sherry, sweet as you like, pour it over some vanilla ice cream and just revel in the splendor of it all. So again, with sherries, you want to think of them like opening a bottle of wine, right? So yeah. you don't want to open a bottle of sherry and then leave it in the cupboard for three months and go back to it every so often. You want to Drink it. Spot on. We've been using it in the wrong way. It's not one to go back to because it'll just, you know, it just won't taste as nice. It'll, it's like leaving a loaf of bread on the side for three days and thinking, mm, it's just not quite as vibrant and juicy and scrumptious as it was when I first bought it. This is why I love also the, the half bottles. Smaller bottles of it allow you to taste this very intense flavour with a bit more alcohol between four people and a cheese board. My goodness me, get an Oloroso, get some Comte, stick that in your face, half bottle between four of you, you'll be disco dancing all night long. It's amazing. It's like Ra Ra Rasputin, you know, kicking into your very soul. Who sang that? I can't even remember. Boney M. It's like Boney M. You're listening to the Food Group Podcast, where we're sharing the stories behind some of the well-known dishes we see on menus all over the world today. If you've got a suggestion or perhaps you disagree with the story we've put forward and have a better one, then please do get in touch either for our Facebook page, The Food Group, or our website, thefoodgrouppodcast.com. As well as guiding us to some of the more interesting wines we can get hold of today, Ollie Smith has been putting together a very different lineup of bottles. We're calling it our Wine Rack of the Gods, a collection of the greatest wines that have ever been made. Those years where historical events or the perfect climate or just sheer winemaking genius has somehow taken what is already something very good and lifted it to legendary status. I know, a tough job, but someone's got to do it. Over to you, Ollie. Penfolds Grange, 1951, is my choice for our wine rack of the gods. Penfolds Grange is an iconic wine uh, from Australia. You know, it's got Shiraz in it, sometimes with a Cabernet. Uh, my kind of close encounter with Penfolds Grange most recently was actually with cricketer Ian Botham. We were in a fishing competition, bobbing off the coast of South Australia. Neither of us caught anything, so we had a bet that if, you know, one of us caught anything at all, you know, the person who could catch the most fish buys the other one a bottle of good wine. Well, neither of us really caught anything. He he did catch kind of a minnow, but it jumped off his hook as he landed it on the boat and I kicked it overboard. And I bought him a bottle of Penfolds Grange, which he magnanimously opened and we shared together. So it's got a place in my heart. But the 51 is iconic because... Max Schubert, who was the kind of guy behind it all, he travelled around Europe in 1950 learning all the techniques. He went back with what he'd learned and he planted and concocted in 51 the first experimental vintage of this stuff. Now, it's a phoenix from the ashes. You've got to picture the scene. Nobody really believes this stuff's any good. Around the world, they're like, what is this? 1951, what was Penfold Grange? What is, what is that? Doesn't do any business really. But... As the years go by, it picks up more and more medals around the world, starts getting interesting, people get excited by it, they think it tastes unique. It's now, you know, 50 grand if you want a bottle. There's about 20 of them left in the world or less. So it's a really prized, 
emblematic wine, not just of Penfold's Grange, which is this Shiraz style of wine, it's also of Australia. It puts a marker down that says, we can make iconic wine in our own style that pays lip service to no man. And we can also win at the ashes. Now, I don't like the last bit because we need to win the ashes all the time, but it just says confidence. I always think of Australian wines as being quite heady. Yeah. I mean, would that be correct? I mean, you know, Penfolds Grange are a big hitting. Yeah, you know, it's boozy. Six, out, six, from six balls in and over. You know, yeah. Kind of cricketer, it's, basically, it? if both of them was a wine, it, you know, he's Penfolds Grange. It's hearty. It's, yes, it's got lots of alcohol. It's got lots of flavour. Uh, but it ages well. But some people, you know, diss it. They think it's not that good. I've tasted quite a few of them. I think I think it's pretty brilliant, to be honest. What I think also is it lends, for me, the real reason I love it, actually, is because I know how many other winemakers are out there. You know, Gary at Jamsheed Wines, you've got a coat of barrels, new wave winemakers who are producing their visions, like Schubert did, their ideas of innovation. What's the future for them? These are the guys today who are making iconic wines. You know, Luke Lambert, there's so many of them now. That's what's so exciting about it. There are blends, there's innovation. Aussie wine today, probably the most exciting category in the world of wine. Cheers, Ollie. And we'll be putting the whole list up on our page too, just in case that eccentric uncle you don't see much suddenly passes away and you inherit his secret wine stash. In these podcasts, you will hear many stories of famous chefs and moments in history and even calamitous events that lead to the creation of some of the dishes we know and love today. Over time, we will attempt to not only explain how their gastronomic birth came about, but also try and shed some light on why they've endured so well why we know about them at all and why perhaps we still cook them. In the case of Bananas Foster, I think it may have something to do with the flammable nature of rum. We eat as much of the eyes as we do with all our other senses and a three-foot burning blue flame over a large saute pan next to your restaurant table is a pretty good way to start things off. Bananas Foster is a sweet caramelised banana dessert covered in butter and brown sugar and finished with a large splash of that all-important rum. Let's get a quick how-to from the brilliant French chef Daniel Galmiche. Yes, yeah, so of course in France we call it banana flambé, not not uh, uh, banana foster. But but it's another uh, theatrical dish uh, which is uh, still done in some of the top hotels, and I love it. And and because it's flambé, so uh, um, you got your your sauté pan. Uh, generally, it was in copper because it was made in front of the customer on a trolley, uh, and the banana was cut in half, pan fried in in a, in a almost caramelized background. That means brown sugar, demarara sugar, whatever, with a little bit of butter and melted. And when it starts to be a, a touch of nuttiness, uh, caramelized brown color, you would put in the banana and you would pre-cook them in both sides. And after that, you used to flambe them with a lovely dark rum. So obviously that was the theatrical part of it. Suddenly people, wow. And the smell was uh, gorgeous. And we served that with a scoop of ice cream. And here we go, banana flambe. Another another great dessert, another, and uh, so whether it's called Foster or Flambe, actually, uh, like we said earl- earlier, I guess uh, it remains with people because of the theatrical part of it and smell. Bananas are a funny thing, not technically fruit at all, and hang in bright yellow finger-like bunches from tall palm trees. Imagine the excitement when back in the 1600s the European explorers landing in the Americas stumbled across them and began to bring them home to their rulers over the oceans. New Orleans became the banana capital of the world with hundreds of ships leaving the port heading to Europe carrying thousands and thousands of this now ubiquitous lunchbox favourite. For chefs though, 
it proposed a problem. It's not the easiest ingredient to deal with. Its flesh is firm and can have quite a bland taste. Or it can fall apart and become unpalatable if left too long. The outer skin tends to go brown and not only that can turn anything it touches brown too. Although you can shine your shoes with the skins in an emergency I believe so, it's, it's not all bad. By the 20th century, New Orleans had a reputation as a party town. Restaurants and bars lined the streets and its large number of jazz clubs gave the whole place a cool, buzzing atmosphere. There's always been an association with magic in the region too and combined with the hot, humid climate, all made for a melting pot of exciting places to hang out. One of the most famous places in town was a bar run by Owen Brennan on Bourbon Street. It was in an old absinthe house and prior to that had been the home to many a fierce pirate hiding out from the British Navy. The secret bar at the back was now the haunt of famous faces of stage and screen, so when Brennan opened a restaurant opposite, it was quick to become the most popular dining room in New Orleans. The restaurant served classic Cajun food, a mixture of gumbos, seafood, thick stews and cornbreads. The chef was a man called Paul Blanger, a talented cook from Holland. Brennan wanted to have something on the menu that would get everyone talking and in 1951 an opportunity presented itself. The latest edition of Holiday magazine was running an article on New Orleans and wanted a recipe from Brennan's restaurant to highlight the things people could enjoy in the area. So, Blanger was given the task of creating something that summed up the city and the restaurant. He had a banana pudding on the menu and he knew the town's biggest export had to be part of the dish. So, with some quick thinking and a slug of that pirate's favourite rum, a brand new firestorm of a recipe was born. Where the previous dish had been a baked bread and banana pudding, the new recipe was flambéed in rum after being slowly caramelised in fistfuls of butter and sugar. It was a winner from the start. The name Foster came from one of Brennan's long-standing customers, Richard Foster. He volunteered to be a guinea pig in the initial tastings. He was a local businessman and a member of the New Orleans Crime Commission. Both he and Brennan were passionate about cleaning up New Orleans and making it a crime-free, safe place to visit. And their indulgent banana recipe was one way in which they could promote the good things in their town. The recipe was an instant hit and readers of Holiday magazine made a beeline for New Orleans and Brennan's. The restaurant and the dessert still exist today and it's often cited as New Orleans' number one dish and any visitor to the city will tell you it's something you have to try. Brennan himself died in 1955 but Foster lived longer and his business, a shop awning company, still trades in the area today. What happened to the chef Paul Blanger though is a little different. He passed away in 1977 and was buried with a knife, a fork and a copy of Brennan's restaurant menu, but his spirit lives on. So much so, in fact, that from time to time other chefs working in the Brennan's kitchen, especially at closing, have reported hearing a knocking at the back door, only to find the street empty, many believing his ghost to haunt the kitchen to this very day. <laughs> Well, on that ghostly note, it's time to shut our food storybook once again and bring to a close this edition of The Food Group. There are more stories in the book, Who Put the Beef in Wellington, by me, James Winter. Do let us know what you think via our Facebook page, The Food Group, or our website, thefoodgrouppodcast.com, which also has more detailed information about the show, and you can contact us if you're interested in sponsoring us. And make sure you hit subscribe in your podcast app so you never miss an episode. Bye for now. The Food Group is a CM Audio production.